All right, good morning, everybody. If you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, please go ahead and grab that and make your way to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 22. That's where we're going to be uh, for the majority of our time this morning. We'll look at a few other places in the scriptures, but Proverbs 22, 6. That's where we're going to look at today. Von Forrest, thank you for worshiping. Thank you for being here. Thank you for joining us uh, either in person or online. And I cannot wait to hear what the Bible has to say to us today. So again, like you heard uh, just a second ago, we're in a series called Misunderstood. And you have heard us talk about a few different things here and there over the last few weeks. Really an intentional thought process is what we're saying. Let's actually... Uh, let's ask the scriptures, like, is this what God's word says? Is this what God's son has said for us? And so this series, we've talked about what faith is, what faith does. We talked about valleys and why you're experiencing those downward times and those harder times of your life. Last week, we asked that question, do do Christians judge? Should Christians judge? Uh, And found some help on that. Today, we're going to talk about uh, something that's very near to my heart and probably yours too. But just thinking about the way the series has gone, this has been, as, as Pastor Chad said in the video, you know, he used the word debunking. And that's, that's fancy language for basically we're wanting to tear down some really unhelpful places where maybe over time, whether it's through tradition or history or in, you know, and we'll see today, maybe some scar tissue, some things have built up. And even though they're not true, you lean on those things as if they are true. And so the goal of this series has been to kind of tear down some, some wrongful ideas and really unhelpful thoughts that you might have. And I'm really glad that we've done that. But at some point, you can't just say that's not true and that's wrong. You've got to ask what is true and what should we do? And so I'm really looking forward to joining us next week. We're going to begin a brand new teaching series. Uh, I didn't talk about it in the last service. I'm not really sure if I'm allowed to talk about it now, but I'm the interim guy, so we'll just kind of do what we want. But anyway, next, next week, we're starting a new teaching series. We're going to talk about the book of Nehemiah, Lord willing. Uh, We're going to see what Nehemiah has to say about this present time that we find ourselves in. I don't know that there's a more appropriate book of the Bible or place in Scripture for Christians to spend their time and really center our hearts and mind than the book of Nehemiah. So very much looking forward to that. Today, we're going to uh, really talk about an idea that's really important, and here's why. Because as we've addressed you know, these uh, Christian myths or spiritual urban legends, um, today what we're going to unpack is this idea that is really deceptive. Uh, the idea that we're looking at today is very deceptive, and it's deceptive not just in the expectations that it creates, although it is. This idea creates false and sometimes wrong expectations. And that's not the only reason that this idea is deceptive. This idea is also deceptive because of the theology that it professes. That there's some real theological categories that we need to talk about. So today we're going to ask this question of does a godly home guarantee godly kids? Right? That's the expectation. Did Jesus really say that a godly home guarantees godly kids? I am very passionate about uh, children's ministry, youth ministry. I'm passionate about watching families and helping families take their next step with Jesus. That's where the majority of my ministry time growing up in my 20s and early 30s was spent in family ministry, youth ministry. And there was a time 
in my life when I wasn't an every Sunday uh, preacher, but there was a time in my life when I believed that before preaching a really specific to age or stage sermon that, and it could be about children or, or families or parenting or maybe even marriage. There was a time when I thought I've got to give a disclaimer because there might be people in the room who aren't necessarily in that place or in that season. And I, I, felt like I needed to give you a reason to buy in and say, no, 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 this actually applies to you too. This matters to you too. But I've come to believe as I have walked alongside families and really just people in general that we don't have to do that anymore. And that's not the case for today. And the reason why is because today is for people who have kids in the house, it's for people who have children at home. It's for people who are processing even now what it means to have adult children and that those adult children are gonna make decisions that you have no control over. This, this, today's message is for people who are thinking about starting a family. Today's message is for people who are praying about starting a family. These, today's message is for people who, uh, for some reason, um, God has not seen fit for you to be able to start a family yet. Today's message is for those of us or those of you who even if you're not raising kids, chances are you were a kid at some point and so you grew up and you were raised by somebody else. So if there's anything that provokes strong emotions or passions in us is this idea of like what's going on with our kids? Like, are the kids really all right? And I got to be a part of just an incredible weekend a couple of weeks ago some really dear friends of ours, they got married and there was a whole, whole big thing to it. And I'll tell you more about that at the end of the sermon, but it was a very special weekend for a lot of reasons. But one of the things that I enjoy about being the pastor at weddings is that I'm kind of free to roam around at any time before the, ser the service or the ceremony starts. Like the bride has to be locked away in case the groom might accidentally see her. And there's the bridal suite where they all get changed. And then there's like the groomsmen and they're just out doing whatever. We're just trying to keep them present and accounted for. But here's a question that I've noticed uh, and I just wanna ask, why don't people get married in churches anymore? Like nobody gets married at a church. Everybody, everybody gets married at venues, old barns, uh, you know, reconditioned auto shops. Like it doesn't matter if it's not a church, people wanna get married there. That's the reality we find ourselves in these days. And what's amazing to me is that we're doing everything we can to really recreate the conditions that you might find at a church. Like we're building altars, we're bringing in chairs, uh, we're, we're playing music, installing temporary sound systems, even temporary lighting in some cases. And so like we want to have the facility feel like a church, just not be a church. And this poses some problems, not theological, just actually physical, because the chairs that we have here in our auditorium, and if you've never been here or if you're joining us online, we have great chairs here. So you've got to come check these out. But the chairs that you rent from like your average party supply company, those are not as nice as the ones that we have or really any church has. Unless you're bringing in pews for a temporary wedding, which sounds like a great idea that nobody's ever had, but you can make a lot of money if you just rented pews out. So that's for free. But anyway, the, the chairs that you bring in from a party supply company, those are like the lowest quality chairs, unless that's you. And like your business is you build party supply chairs. If that's you, I'm sure yours are great. But other than that, the chairs that we had at this wedding two weeks ago, 
Man, we went with the lowest bidder, evidently, because these things were snapping up people like it was just, you know, like I was watching Pac-Man happen. Like it was just the collapse of all these chairs. And as a pastor, I'm roaming around and there's so many kids at this wedding, so many kids in this ceremony. And I'm watching this and you've probably been there before where you're not the parent of the child in the room. And so you don't really bear all the responsibility that you normally would. Grandparents, you must feel like this all the time. It's beautiful. But um, I was watching these children play on these chairs. I know they're low quality. I've watched the chairs collapse for most of the morning and I know what's going to happen. The kid's going to play on the chair. The kid's going to fall out of the chair. And then the mom is going to look at the dad and say, what were you doing? Like, what were you looking at? What score were you checking on your phone and you weren't watching our kid as they fell out of the chair? And this happened over and over and over again until I started to think, do we have a backup flower girl? Like, do we have people who can actually do substitute ring bearer? Uh, Because these kids are in danger and really getting hurt. And today what we're talking about has something to do with that. Not necessarily the physical danger that your children are in in today's age, although that day is here, if not soon coming, but there's not time for that. But uh, today, we're going to talk about how it feels for me to be in that position on a daily basis. Like I feel like that every single day, that I'm not watching children or families have to, you know, survive this potential physical danger, but I am watching moms and I'm watching dads and grandparents and aunts and uncles. I'm watching these people be so close and really in the same room. And they have relationship, they just, they're, they're in the same proximity, they're close enough to where these families, they should be able to do something. And maybe they know they should be able to do something. And yet it feels like we don't know what to do, how to act, and we find ourselves consistently just reacting and catching up. Here's what I mean. If you don't, in whatever role you find yourself in, as a family member today, if you don't step in to be the primary influence in your child's life, there is somebody who is all too happy to take your place. All too happy. I have a pastor friend, his name's Jason, and he says it like this, whoever wants the next generation the most will get them. And that's absolutely true. Whoever wants the next generation the most will get them. So I hope you found Proverbs 22, six by now. Let me read that for us this morning. It says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. This is God's word. And God's word to us today is important because it is God who made us. And when God made us, like that was an intentional thing. Like God created us. When God made us, he blessed us by creating us in his image. When he made us, he blessed us. And the way that he primarily blessed us was by making us like him. So if you were here last week or if you weren't, let me catch you up. What does it mean that we're created in God's image? It means that every single strand of DNA passed from one generation to the next is marked with a divine heritage. Like nobody gets left out. Every single person that you lock eyes with or you're in relationship with, every single human bears some kind of resemblance to our creator God. And that includes you, and that includes me, that includes our kids, and it includes the author of this proverb, Solomon. So Solomon was the author of this proverb, and we need to do a little work on him. So this man, Solomon, he had a story and a history and a past, but Solomon also had a family. So who was Solomon's father? David. King David was uh, Solomon's father. And who was Solomon's mother? Bathsheba. 
Yes, that Bathsheba. And so Solomon's family has a little bit of a history of dysfunction, like that Bathsheba that David organized and essentially coordinated the murder of her first husband so that he could commit adultery with her. That's Solomon's parents. The wisest man who ever lived has a chaotic family story. Like he doesn't come from parents who had a subscription to focus on the family. Like Solomon's family had a little bit of a backstory. And while we're on the subject, so I keep using this word proverb and I, and I feel like we need to make sure we know what it means. Like the, the name of this book where we're focusing on this one verse today, the name of this book is Proverbs. And if you wanna have, you know, my, this theological deep, deep take, like this is evidence that I'm a very well-trained and educated man. Um, the verse that's in the book of Proverbs is called, you ready? A proverb. There you go. That's why you drove down to church today, right? It's a proverb. It's not a promise. Here's what I mean. I doubt that Solomon intended for us to take this verse as an absolute promise with no exceptions. This is very important. This verse is not a promise. Now I'll show you why that's important. Because as we said, this idea does not necessarily only have the possibility to deceive you in giving you wrong expectations. This idea can actually preach to you and teach to you theological error. There is a type of preaching, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with it. Uh, this type of preaching is called prosperity gospel preaching. Prosperity gospel preachers. Prosperity, health and wealth, word of faith. It has many different names and goes by many different things, but they're all doing the same thing. And that's masking an evil and ugliness that we actually have to address before we go on this morning. So what is the prosperity gospel? Prosperity gospel is a doctrine that teaches that God wills the financial prosperity and the physical well-being of his people and that faith and positive speech and positive thinking and financial contributions to select Christian ministries, that that can increase your material wealth and health. Here's the way I'd describe it. Just an easy definition. Our working definition of the prosperity gospel is this. The prosperity gospel is a way to put God in your debt to get you out of debt. That's the prosperity gospel. You've heard it. Just send in this donation. Just sow a seed of faith. If you just think positively, this is a quid pro quo way of relating to God. Like if you do this, God will have to do that. This is a way of you trying to put God on the hook of making it impossible. He has to be in your service, in your debt. So I wanna believe you're here today. I, mean, I wanna believe that you know that this is just foolishness. This is, this is complete and utter foolishness. But let me press you just a little bit this morning. And this is me as a parent, right? I'm here, I'm one of you. And I say this with a smile on my face. I say this out of love for you. You recognize, as I do, that prosperity gospel theology is wrong. Yes, amen. We know that it's wrong. It's foolishness, good. What about prosperity parenting? What about prosperity parenting? Because it's harder to spot. It's much more difficult to zoom in on. And since I'm a parent, let me just raise my hand here. I'm not gonna point the finger at anybody. I just wanna tell you, this is how it works for me. 
Like I have a predisposed notion of what my children need to do and what they need to say and how they need to act and what they need not to do. And so uh, that's, I have hopes for them. I'm trying to teach them to do something. And there are times when they fail miserably. Like not only do they not do what I want them to do, they do the opposite. I'm raising little Romans chapter seven Pauls in this moment. It's almost like what they want to do, they cannot do. And so uh, when they do that, when they ultimately, they fail, it devastates me as a dad. It, I, it hurts, it makes me sad, it ruins my day. When my children break my heart, my heart literally hurts. And the reason it hurts when my children sin and when they don't do what I ask them to do is because I take it personally. Like I take that personally because I feel like I've done my part. Like I haven't withheld information from them. It's not that I'm just making life in my house mysterious. So why is it that I can lead them up to the moment of decision and yet they're going to do the wrong thing? Why do they do that? And why does it make me so sad? Why do I take it so personally? I mean, like I've read the books, I listen to the podcasts, I go to the conferences. Just like you, I try to be a welcoming parent who creates a safe environment. I give them all the resources and opportunities that they could ever want. And it's in this moment that God almost always reminds me of this. Hey, Brett, I didn't give you perfect kids. It's like God says to me, Brett, I did not give you perfect kids and I didn't give your kids a perfect parent. And that's true for every one of us in the room. God did not give you perfect kids, but God did not give your kids perfect parents either. And then when we, when we live and breathe as if the way we're going to raise our kids is if we can just create the right conditions and then we'll get the acceptable behaviors I wonder if we're able to reasonably reject prosperity gospel theology and yet seem to live and breathe in a way of prosperity parenting. That it's worth our time to address this morning. It's worth our time to ask, like, are we living life in the way that God has intended us to live it? Are we living wisely? Are we living in the world that God created in the way that brings him honor and glory? That's, that's called living with wisdom. And there are times when you have to make do. It's, it, this happens to me every three months. So every three months, it's time for me to change the air filters in my house. And every three months I go to Home Depot and it's as if I have never changed an air filter in my entire life. I don't know what size of air filter I'm supposed to get. I have no idea where they keep them. It's just as if it's my first time every time. I'm calling home and I'm like, Lane, can you tell me what size our air filters are? And she's like, how do you not have this like written down somewhere? Or <laughs> just take, take a picture, take a picture on your phone and you'll have it forever. And I'm like, I know, I know, just, just work with me. And so, you know, I get the air filter and I go home. And again, it's, like, it's as if I've never done this before, but I'll, you know, kneel down at the little filter thing and, I'll, I'll dis discover that I, I need a flathead screwdriver, but I haven't gotten one out of the toolbox yet. And so I start like fishing around in my pockets and looking around in the dresser for a dime. Because I think in this moment, if I can just use a dime, then I won't have to go back. And you know how frustrating it is to not have the tool that you need at the right moment? Like you can make do for a while. You know, that's true for almost anything. Like if you need a hammer and all you have is a phone, you can use your phone as a hammer, but not for long. What am I, what am I talking about? 
I'm talking about that there are ways in which God has designed you to live as a parent. There are ways in which God has designed your child to enjoy being raised by you as a parent that are wise, that are God-honoring, that are pleasing, that actually do track with what the scriptures say. There is a way to live in God's world. And when you live in God's world, but reject God's ways, you can survive and make do. But after a moment, it's going to get hard and somebody might get hurt. But there is a way. There must be a way. Solomon wasn't just riffing when he said, raise up a child in the way he should go. There is a way. I want us to look at a very notable passage in the Old Testament. It's out of uh, the book of Deuteronomy chapter six. And in Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four, this is what we read. This is Moses saying, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Here's what I think the Bible is leading us toward. What does it mean to live with wisdom as people who have families and as parents, it means that we need to lead by example. This is what the scriptures are describing as the wise way to live as parents is that we must lead by example. If you just look at the opening verse of Deuteronomy 6, 4, it says, hear, O Israel. And did you know that in Hebrew, that word is pronounced Shema. And the word Shema in Hebrew means both hear and do. So you could faithfully render Deuteronomy 6.4 as both hear, O Israel, and also do this, O Israel. And this is such an important passage that Jesus quotes this part of Deuteronomy 6 when he's approached by people and they ask him, what is the most important commandment? Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.4. He wants us to know that it's not just about saying that loving Jesus is the most important thing to our children. That will not get it done. It means that we have to do more than just say to our kids, you must love Jesus. You need to love Jesus. What this passage tells us, what the story of scripture tells us is that we have to not just say it, but believe that loving Jesus is the most important thing. Here's what I mean. Is there any perfect parent in the room? No, nobody raised their hand. None of us are perfect. But we can't expect our children to excel or do anything that we're not even gonna attempt or try. And man, that silence, that silence is the same that I feel in my spirit too. That's the conviction that the spirit brings to me. But that silence and that spirit is the spirit of Jesus that leads to repentance. And the first step in leading by example is not just going home and making sure that you have the word of God displayed in your house, or that you're gonna, for the first time in 10 years, say, gather around everybody, we're having a Bible study tonight. That's not what I mean by leading by example. What do I mean? For most of us in the room, the way that we need to lead by example is to follow the exhortation of the spirit of God. And if it's the spirit of God and his kindness, then what does God, God's kindness always lead us toward? Repentance. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And that is the example that we need to lead with. 
We need to repent of our silence. And we've been silent because some of us have outsourced the discipling of our kids to the church and to Christian school. And we have given the job to somebody else when it belongs primarily to us. We have an incredible youth ministry here. A couple weeks ago, like 19 kids got saved on one Wednesday night. Like it's unbelievable. Like Matt is killing it as a student pastor. Our kids ministry at this church is doing phenomenal things in the life of families. But that's not enough. Like you can't outsource the discipleship of your children to anybody else. And so if you've been silent in the realm of discipling your kids, it's time to repent. We need to repent of our neglect not neglecting to provide for their physical or emotional needs, but neglecting to deal with our stuff. And by dealing with our stuff, I mean the stuff and the baggage that we have brought into the house and brought into the relationship. And because we haven't dealt with our stuff, we don't know how to help our families. And that leads us to need to have to repent further and repent of our distance because it seems like since we don't know how to do it, then we wanna stay away from it as long as we possibly can. So we need to lead by example. We have to repent of our silence and our neglect and our distance. And I know that's a lot. <sighs> Man, hear me. I, that, that, this has been a, a hard week as a dad because this is, this is what I've been living in for the past six days. And I know that's a lot and I know it's a mouthful and I know it sounds like bad news. But the only reason that good news feels like good news is if you've accepted the reality that you need to hear some. And for the gospel to be good news, it has to invade some rather dark places. And the gospel, look at me, the gospel is great news. The gospel is great news. It is good news for parents. The gospel is good news for families who are doing their best but still failing to raise up their children in the way they should go. And we have to remember it. We have to remember the gospel. We can't forget it. We can't hear it enough. You can't be told it enough. You can't preach it to yourself enough. We have to remember the gospel. Remember that we are called by God to lead our children in following Jesus. As we lead, what it makes us is an example of what it means to be a man or woman of God. Like we've already established that, but what happens? So that's, that's great. That's a, that's a wonderful plan. Let's lead our children in what it means to follow Jesus. Sounds ideal. But what happens when you fail? Because you will, and I will too, probably before they go to sleep tonight. What I mean to say is that the sound of your voice when you apologize and when you repent and when you admit your mistakes, and when you say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, the sound of your voice saying those words should not be unfamiliar to your kids. Gospel people are repenting people. Repentance is not something that you do to start your relationship with Jesus. Repentance is what you do every day in your relationship with Jesus. But I know as I talk about family and parenting and children and um, and some baggage. I know that there's some of us in the room have some, some real baggage around that. Because for some of you in the room, it's not just a hypothetical situation to think about. You grew up with parents who never admitted that they were wrong, who never said they were sorry. And they inflicted some real wounds that have caused some real trauma that you're dealing with today. You're still dealing with it. And I want you to know that the gospel is good news for you.
The gospel is good news for people who have kids who have wandered off and you're not ready to yet celebrate the testimony that they came back home. Right now, they just feel like a prodigal. They don't feel like a returning prodigal. The gospel is good news for you. Do you know why? Because it's the the God who began the good work in them will be faithful to complete it. It might take until the day of Christ Jesus, but he who remains faithful is faithful. Even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. That's the gospel is good news for people who have kids who are still present tense rebelling. The gospel is good news for people who have parents with a past. Because repenting and believing the gospel is the one way we can do our best. That generational garbage and sin and dysfunction stops with you and it doesn't get passed down to the next generation. The gospel is good news for people who wonder if hope or healing can ever happen. Can I tell you something? It's not the rip. Like I know that you can in a moment with a word, even without meaning to, I know that you can inflict instant and sincere pain and some of you have. Some of you, as I'm talking, even this morning, you're thinking about, and I'm doing it too. Like I'm having two conversations, one you're hearing, one only I'm hearing. And it's all the times and places where I have said the thing that I know I shouldn't say at the moment I shouldn't say it. And I think I've done damage in that moment. I've torn down in that moment. I have not built up. I've inflicted, I haven't healed. And I've got good news for those of us who have some repenting yet to do. It's not the rip, it's the repair. It's not the rip, it's the repair. Does a godly home guarantee godly kids? I don't think so. I don't think there's any guarantee of that. But do kids with godly parents have a distinct advantage in this world and in this life? Absolutely they do. They definitely do. And your child's story, the band's gonna come out in just a second, but your child's story, everybody in the room, in all likelihood, your kid's story is gonna be about 80 years long and then an eternity after that. The long view is really important not to lose sight of because in the moment that you're in right now, especially if right now and this moment is really hard and it might even be really traumatic and this might be the season that you can't wait to end. Here's what we have to do. We have to take the long view and realize and accept that clumsy might be the best we got. That we're going to have to become okay living on God's terms. That it is in his good timing where all things are made perfect and new. Um, this is a lot, admittedly. It's a lot. And it, it's, it feels like a lot because when we talk about our kids, um, it matters so much. But I want you to know that being a parent who's raising kids who they do believe that loving Jesus is the most important thing, like that can only be achieved, not through knowing more. It's not through more information. The only way that you're gonna raise kids who love Jesus is if you surrender to Jesus first. Surrendering to Jesus allows you to take the long view. It allows you to get through the hard days because you know that that great day is coming. I told you, I was at this wedding two weeks ago and it was, it was so beautiful, not just because of 
like all weddings, all weddings are, are just a sight. But this wedding was really special because it was between, it was two people, this guy and this girl who my wife and I had played a big time role in discipling uh, each of them. Like for seven, eight, nine years, we had really poured into their lives. And um, at the actual ceremony, there's this moment where uh, the first bridesmaid to walk down the aisle is my oldest daughter. So I'm watching my oldest daughter walk down the aisle to me. Then the second bridesmaid to walk down the aisle is the matron of honor, that's my wife. So I'm watching my wife walk down the aisle to me. Then all the other bridesmaids come through and I don't really care about them. unless they're watching. Then the flower girl comes up the aisle. It's my youngest. The three most important women in my life are all walking down the aisle towards me on this day. Perfect day. Doesn't get any better. Then the bride walks down the aisle and I'm standing with her soon to be groom and he is a hot mess. Just, I mean, not really holding it back, honestly. And that's okay. And uh, in my notes, so I have this little folder that I used when I do wedding ceremonies. In my notes, I had found this picture of the three of us. It was taken like five years before. And we were just out one night and we had we'd done life together for so long. And so it wasn't hard to find a picture of the three of us. And I found this picture, it was the three of us. And I wrote a note, just handwritten above the picture on the piece of paper. And uh, you're the only people who know this outside of them. So don't tell them, all right? But when they finally stood together at the end of the aisle, I held out my my folder for them to read. And the note that I had written to both of them is I said, I have been praying for this day since that day. That for for more than than a short season, but for for years and years and years, I'd been praying because I knew, I knew they were perfect for each other. But between the day that I took that picture and the day that they were standing at the end of that aisle, there was a lot of days in between. There's a lot of, of hurt and heartache and wondering. There's a lot of bad decisions made. There's a lot of things that they regret. There's a lot that went into those years between the day that that picture was taken and the day they stood at the end of the aisle. And I thought, Brett, that's, that's, that's such a limited perspective because that's really not, that's not their whole life. I remember watching as, uh, as Garrett was dancing with his mom and Rachel was dancing with her dad. I remember thinking that there's probably been a lot of days that led up to this day. Days that didn't feel like celebrations and days that weren't beautiful and days that made you cry, not because they were so happy, but because they were so hard and so dark. Here's what the gospel gives to us. It's the thing that we need the most as parents. You look at me. What we need the most as parents is the perspective that only the gospel gives, which is this. If we're going to experience the joy of life that comes from raising children, if we're going to experience that, we cannot escape the pain of love. It's built in. It's baked in. Baked into your relationship with your kids is the reality that love is painful. And the the reason we know that is that the only perfect parent who ever existed, that God the Father did send his son Jesus into the world. And you know this as a parent, 
There is no pain like kid pain. No pain like kid pain. That when your kid is hurt, you, you switch places with them in an instant. Imagining what it was like for Father God to watch his son Jesus suffering on the cross for crimes that he hadn't committed, but for sins that I did. And enduring the punishment that I had earned, and yet now it's all on his shoulders. That kind of pain, I will never know the immense amount of it. But if we're gonna experience the joy of life, we cannot escape the pain of love. I'd like for you to stand to your feet as we close our time today, but I want you to stay with me. So stand to your feet, but stay with me. I'd like to ask you to bow your heads and just allow me the, the honor to, to pray for you. And I wanna pray some specific prayers. Um, I wanna pray for moms and dads and you don't need to raise your hand or even grab a hand in this moment. But I wanna pray for moms and dads who sense the leading of the spirit that there are some actual places where they need to repent out loud as a parent to their children. I pray that God would give you the courage to do that. I, would, I pray that God would remind you that you have given them this day and not promised them anymore. But that, we would be, that they would be bold and courageous and honest to repent out loud to the people that they care about the most. And I pray for moms and dads, you're here, you're watching online, you couldn't even get, that's fine. You're in that season of you are so overwhelmed that all you need is rest. I want you to know that that season is so short and it will go by in the blink of an eye. But I wanna pray for you as a parent who feels overwhelmed that you would not miss the miracles that are happening on a daily basis. You wouldn't miss the opportunity to invest now so that you could enjoy later that you would put into practice now intentional times of repenting and being honest and apologizing as a mom, as a dad. For those of you in the room who are experiencing the, the type of pain, type of kid pain that only comes from having a kid who is experiencing the season called prodigal son, where they're out living life with no rules, that they have not yet come to their senses, I want you to know that God is their father first and that he loves your child more than you can ever imagine. And that yes, now is hard and today is difficult, but we have to take the long view and know that God will bring all things. God will make all things new, that there will come a moment when God will make all the sad things untrue. And I pray that you would feel that peace that only God can provide. And for those of us who still need to surrender our own heart, I pray that we would loosen our grip on our expectation for the people in our house to be perfect because we know we sure aren't. Heavenly Father, I pray for all of us, parents or not, every one of us in the room, you would attach your word to our hearts. Help us to know and sense Jesus. Help us to love him and make loving him the most important thing. It's in his name we pray and worship. Amen.